The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. This is Zach Groff. I'm the host of the podcast, and I have with me in the studio today Dr. Joseph A. Piper, Jr., president of the seminary for our monthly Faith in Practice segment. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zachary. It's good to be with you. If you are new to the podcast, it is my privilege to introduce to you our monthly Q&A session with Dr. Piper, where listeners send in their questions and Dr. Piper gives his answer, and then I give comments from the peanut gallery, <laughs> most of which I delete in post-production. So today we have a host of excellent questions from our listeners uh, running, uh, running the gamut, I guess, from biblical theology to systematic theology and applied theology and everything in between. But before we get started... I am going to pray, and then Dr. Pipe and I will share some news from the seminary that you all will be most interested in. So let's go to the Lord in prayer together, and then, then we'll dive in. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time which you have set aside for us to explore your word, your counsel that you have given unto us for our good and your glory, that we would grow in faith and godliness in this life. Lord, in this time and through this time, please prepare us not only for the life to come, but also, Lord, for day-to-day -day living in the life here and now. Prepare us especially to worship you more and more in spirit and in truth, reflecting your glory back to you in doxology each and every day, and especially when gathered together with your people on the Lord's Day each and every week. We thank you for this time, and we pray that your spirit would be here in our midst even now. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So, Dr. Piper, we have something going on here at the seminary next week, don't we? We do, Zach. A big week. Our conference, our annual spring conference, 21st. Is it the 21st? I, I think, think you're right. So, in March of 98 was my inaugural conference. It was a one-day conference on uh, Southern Presbyterian, particularly Columbia Seminary. We had David Jones come, and then I gave an address, and some other people spoke as well. And I actually had already had on my mind... Um, having a spring conference, because nobody was doing one at the time. And so uh, we had people at that conference only asked, asked us to do something. So we started the conference then in 99, dealt with creation. First couple of years, melted, met in our first building, we outgrew that, went over to from a Baptist church, we outgrew that, and now we're over at Woodruff Road, and it's been their great host, and it's been a real pleasure uh, to be there. So this conference is exciting, as you well know, uh, on the Synod of Dort, we will have two historical lectures, but because our attendees ask for preaching, we've got seven sermons, and I'm just very excited about the conference. Yes, the seven sermons on each of the five doctrines of grace, or five points of Calvinism, and then a sermon on the pastoral application of the five points, and then a sermon on the five of Calvinism beyond the five right. points. So, uh, Dr. Hamilton will start with a sermon uh, that Calvinism is more than the five points. Then we'll have the five points preached exegetically. And then uh, one of our graduates, Phil Proctor, who served for uh, two terms, eight years in Uganda as a missionary, will be doing the concluding message on the pastoral implications of the five points. So it's really good. And we'll be announcing next year's conference, which will be on the church and the means of grace. We're very excited about that. You all save that date now. So it'll be the second full week in March. And it'll be right here in Greenville at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church, Lord willing. 
Yes. And other announcements worth mentioning right now. On Thursday night of next week, we will have our annual Spring Scholarship Banquet benefiting this year our International Student Scholarship Fund. There are still seats available. We would love for you to join us. That's probably particularly uh, of relevance to our local listeners, those of you who live in the Greenville, Simpsonville, Greer, Taylors, Easley area. If, if you have a passion for missions, there's no better investment than in men who are already called uh, to go into the ministry abroad and have come here for a few years to study with us in preparation for that. You know, Zach, I, I tell churches when I'm out and about that um, you can put a, uh, an English speaker in a mission field. Um, it's going to cost about $150,000 a year. He'll be in language school for at least two years, and then he'll be... Mm, moderately competent, maybe, in preaching in a language. Um, so $300,000 before he's even ready to do much of anything. Invest $100,000 in one of our foreign students, and you send him back a well-prepared ambassador for Christ to his country. Now, we still want to send, and often these guys try to recruit their classmates to go with them, but if you think in terms of missions, uh, bang for buck, uh, there's no better thing to do than to support these guys, and they are some top-notch fellows here. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And if, if you're a member of one of our local churches here, you've probably seen some of our guys from abroad because they go to, I mean, it's, it seems like almost every PCA church within yeah. just a 10-mile radius from the OP seminary. Well. And OPC. And Bible Presbyterian. That's right. Well, and ARP. Dr. Piper knows. <laughs> Dr. Piper knows. Um, we have other information on the website about our Summer Pastors Institute this year. We're going through counseling through Job, particularly focused on suffering with Dr. Joel Enoch Wood. We also have a couple of electives available in August with Dr. Wilborn and Dr. McGraw. We'll be giving more information about those on the podcast between now and then, but you can get information now at gpts.edu slash summer. So I encourage you to check and that out. May 3rd, we're going to have a special apologetics lecture by uh, Cam, Dr. Canvin Busey. This is the Jerry Crick uh, lecture. Jerry was a Greenville grad with a doctorate from here on Anselm. Uh, he that taught here later. Uh, Jerry died a few years ago, uh, and so his wife uh, made a wonderful donation, and this is the special lecture now that we're doing. That's going to be a lot of fun. Cam is a very uh, effective speaker and really knows his apologetics, so we're looking forward to that. And then earlier in April... Um, Dr. Stoker from South Africa will be on campus for about three days lecturing. So again, people who are local, uh, feel free to come into these classes as well. Yes, we'll be publicizing these on our website and on our social media channels as well. So without further ado, let's jump into our questions. Want to do further? Oh, we have one to do further. Do, uh, I asked you guys last month, our listeners, to respond to us, and we really appreciate uh, the responses we got to the last podcast and the encouragement that many of you found in this discussion, both about the overtures and about um, uh, why we should stay in the PCA. So thank you for your response. Please, uh, we want feedback, pushback, other questions. We're open for anything. Absolutely. But we do believe the PCA is worth striving for, and Dr. Piper eloquently uh, went into detail about that uh, last episode. Our first question comes from Lando Robredio Lovado of Doha, Qatar. That's where he's currently living. Thank you for the question, Lando. Is Malachi 3.10 applicable to Christians today? Why or why not? And what is the Reformed position on tithing? First off, it's wonderful to have a listener in Qatar. So thank you for listening. Thank you for 
getting in touch with us. Um, for discussion's sake, Malachi is the uh, passage on tithing. Uh, beginning with verse 8, Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? That you say, How have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me, try me, he says, to know. Um, test me now in this, says uh, Jehovah of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. So here in the concluding book of the Bible, God is accusing his people of um, robbing him because they're not giving him uh, the tithe. So that's the passage that uh, Lando has in mind. Um, and is there a reformed position on tithing? Is it applicable today or not? Those two questions really are intertwined. And I would say there's probably not a unified position on tithing. Uh, the great uh, Peck, who followed Dabney at Union Seminary and was taught by uh, Girardeau, uh, argues against tithing. Most, I would say, though, of uh, the Reformed Fathers have uh, argued in favor of tithing being a continued New Testament institution. And we have to go back to Genesis 4 to begin to understand why. Tithing was not simply a part of the Mosaic economy. So you can compare it to the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system, part of the Mosaic economy, I mean before the Mosaic economy, back from the garden forward. Um, when it was fulfilled in Christ, then it was overtly annulled in the New Testament. So the whole book of Hebrews showing us then the sacrifices are no longer necessary. Tithing is also pre-Mosaic. We find the first instance of it in Genesis chapter 14, when uh, Melchizedek, who's appointed to be a Christ type, uh, comes out and meets Melchizedek after the Valley of the Kings. And Melchizedek blesses uh, Abram in the name of God Most High. And this is El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abraham, gave him a tenth of all. So in the first place, we have here the first instance of tithing. But tithing must have been some sort of act of devotion for Abraham to do it and for Moses to record it, that it was that specific amount. Now, not only is this pre-Mosaic, and of course we find then Jacob pledging a tithe to God as he leaves the land, but I want to relate the tithe here to the name that uh, Melchizedek refers to God, a God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. We immediately have moved beyond the covenant community uh, to the nations. Melchizedek, this very strange priest from Jerusalem, um, in, in the line of Noah through Shem, uh, a godly and righteous king priest who is set by the Holy Spirit to be the picture, the type of Christ, as well as the order by which Christ would be the king priest. But a tithe is given to him as the priest of God Most High. Now, in the New Testament, if you have time to look this up, the reference to God Most High is often used in the context of the Gentiles and of the spreading of the church throughout the world. And so I think that the relationship of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, not just 
of the land of Israel. And the tithe related to that establishes the principle that we tithe because God is God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He's the one who made us. He owns us. And thus, he has said that the minimum of our response to him is to be 10%. I think it's interesting then that in the end of the Old Testament, uh, we have tithing uh, mentioned with a blessing attached to it. And then when Jesus rebukes the Jews uh, for tithing minuscule things um, and neglecting the weightier matters of the law, he says you should have done this without neglecting the other. And so Jesus himself does not annul tithing, and nor does any other place in the New Testament. Now, I recognize that Paul will talk about sacrificial giving. He often does that in the context of uh, special offerings for the poor. So even in the Old Covenant with the tithe, there also were uh, alms and, and giving to, to aid the poor, in addition to the tithe, which did go for the poor, but also to support the Levites and their tithe to support uh, the priesthood. And so there, we often talk about tithes and offerings, and the tithe then is the floor of our giving, but we give then to special Christian needs as well. So I find it to be uh, applicable. I'm actually writing, Lord willing, a pamphlet on this. It will go in the um, Reformation Heritage Book um, uh, pamphlet series. Lord willing, I'll have this finished by the, by the end of June. Dr. Pipe is referring to the Cultivating Biblical Godliness series from Reformation Heritage Books, uh, which our own Dr. Ryan McGraw is a co-editor for, and he's uh, published a, a few titles in that. Dr. Pipe has a title on, is a, is a Lord's Day for You, and another title on How Can I Do All Things to God's Glory, both of which are excellent little introductions to those topics and, um, and worth picking up. We will have those available at the Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary Spring Theology Conference when Reformation Heritage Books is here to uh, manage our bookstore, and they curate quite an excellent selection for us while they're here. Thank you for the question again, Lando. Our next question comes from Anonymous. Within the past year, my wife and I have become convinced of covenant theology and pedo-baptism, thanks in part to your podcasts. Woohoo! For many years, we've been members of a non-denominational evangelical church, and I'm even on staff at this church in a non-ministry role. The nearest conservative, confessional, reformed Presbyterian church is a 40-minute drive from where we live. Six months ago, we had our first child, and we believe she should be baptized into the covenant community, but this is not possible at the Baptistic Evangelical Church with which we are involved. I would love to join the confessional church 40 minutes away, but I'm concerned about removing my wife from her close friendships with other young moms who live nearby, as well as my relationship ties and my job at our church. From a reform perspective, how should we balance the command to initiate our child with the need for a generally geographically close church community? Should the sacrament take priority over my concerns about distance and relationships? I greatly appreciate your wisdom. Well, anonymous... Thank you very much for a well-thought-out question and one that, uh, as a pastor in the past, I've had to uh, deal with on, on more than one occasion. First off, we praise the Lord that, that you're continuing to grow in your grasp of Scripture, of covenant theology, and of, of pedo-baptism. Uh, and I'm very appreciative now of the struggle um, that, with which you and your wife are wrestling so I'm going to throw out a couple of ideas, not knowing more specifics. And if we get back with specifics, I could be more, uh, more detailed. First place, uh, there are a number of places uh, where I go 
where there are church members who drive over 40 minutes to get to a church. I was just preaching a conference at a church south of Nashville, Tennessee, and they have members that come from an hour away. When I was in Houston, I had at least one or two families that were uh, pretty much that far away. Uh, and so uh, 40 minutes is, in today's culture, uh, not nearly as long. Now, the, the drawbacks on that are the fact that you don't have a church you can invite your neighbors to. And that's uh, something that, well, you do, but it's more difficult to, to invite neighbors to go with you 40 minutes. But that can be done as well. Um, so I think my first suggestion, Anonymous, is that you would uh, join the church that's 40 minutes away with the understanding that you'll attend the morning worship service and then you attend the evening service at the Baptist church uh, where you are now. That enables you to have some uh, nearby fellowship, your wife's friendships, if they'll allow you, uh, whatever it is you're doing uh, in the church. But it also allows you to be under a, a, a biblical session and to baptize your child. For me, that's, that's the best. Now, a second option, and I've done this as well in the past, and that is if both churches agreed, if your Baptist church agreed uh, for you to request the Presbyterian church to baptize your child with the understanding that you would continue your membership at the Baptist church, uh, then you can do I, I think I did, I've done that twice out of 22 years of pastoral ministry. And so uh, that is also, of course, you would need to, uh, in the proper sense of the term, broad-minded churches to accomplish that. You might need a broad-minded Baptist church to accomplish the first one as well. But that's the direction I would urge you uh, to go, is to join it, to get there on the Lord's Day. And the other thing that we did, I, I want your wife, though, to have these relationships. And if she can't have them through homeschool groups or mom's groups or whatever, I think that is important. Um, one of the things that we did for the distance travelers and other churches do this is that we had a number of families on rotation. And so once a month, we would have a family with their children spend the Lord's Day afternoon with us. They could go to the evening service and then return home comfortably on Sunday evening. So there's other things that can be done as well. But please, if you need more, uh, get back to, to me with more specifics. I'd be glad to uh, speak with you on the telephone or interact on email. Our next question comes from Russell Johnston of Lewisburg, Tennessee. He's a member of Hopewell ARP in Kolioka, Tennessee. Uh, good, uh, good church family for our seminary. One of these churches, Lewis, might, he might be one of those that drive some distance. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because if I remember correctly, Lewisburg is not right in the neighborhood of Kolioka. Well, nothing is, but it's in the middle of the country. This is our question from Mr. Johnston. It's my sense that most men attending seminary are young in their 20s and 30s. Is that correct? If so, is there a place for older men in their 40s and 50s to attend seminary and begin ministry later in life? Assuming the financial aspects of seminary, as well as the impact on family life and children were managed, what are your thoughts on older men attending seminary and seeking a call to ministry? Many thanks. Well, Russell, it's good to hear from you, and uh, my thoughts are, come on down. Uh, it's true that um, probably most of the men in seminary are in their 20s and 30s, and we see these trends that occur. We'll have a period of time where mostly single men, and then the last few years it's been mostly married men, and now this year we've got more single men than we've had 
I had in a while at seminary. And we always have in our enrollment, I would say almost in every class, some men in their 40s. So I think of Ryan Lee uh, this year or um, uh, the fellow from up on the, on the mountain who's in his 50s. Um, and it's never too late. Really the important issue here is to be tested by your session. So to be convinced you have a call, to work through those uh, issues, to, and to have your session's concurrence. If your session says, we believe that you have gifts uh, for the ministry and we want you to go to seminary, then come. Early on, the seminary had a man who graduated in the 70s and then pastored uh, a little local church for a, a number of of years, he also served as treasurer for Calvary uh, Presbytery. So, no, it's not too late. I think another good friend of mine who pastors the church now in Houston that I pastored for ten and a half years. He was in his forties when he came to seminary. He's now been there uh, ten years. I think he's probably close to his fifties when he came to seminary. So, it's never too late, and we just hope that you would, um, uh, if God's calling you, then please come on. I am the director of admissions here. I would love to hear from you, Russell. In fact, I'll be following up with you after we air this episode to make sure that all of your questions are answered. Well, you'll be there in two weeks. That's true. I will be at Hopewell in a couple weeks. I'll just I'll just wait till I see you face to face. There's no rush. <laughs> Our next question comes from Virginia Canuto of Recife, Brazil, and Virginia asks a question regarding Exodus four twenty four, where we read that God was angry with Moses and sought to kill him because of his that is Moses's negligence and his covenantal responsibility. Could you answer the following questions, Doctor Piper? One: For what purpose did God want to kill Moses? Two, why did Zipporah, Moses' wife, take the lead in the home by circumcising their son, as we read in verse 25? Three, does God accept this act, even though Zipporah is not a priestess? And four, why does it seem that Moses does not direct the people of Israel to circumcise their sons once he assumes leadership over the twelve tribes? It, it is only in Joshua 5 that we see the circumcision of the sons of Israel. Virginia, why don't you ask an easy question once in a while? <laughs> Ask your pastor. Uh, it's a very good question. And I'm not, I'm not sure that, and I've done a little bit of research on this and talked to one of our Old Testament people as well. Uh, to start with Exodus 24, uh, they came about at the lodging place on the way that Jehovah met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. She said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, so he, that's Jehovah, let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. I think the best way to understand what happened here is, in the first place, it was not a priest who did circumcision. So it was taking place in the, uh, uh, in the synagogue community in every town and village of Israel once the, the law was established. Um, evidently, uh, Moses, when he lived there in the household of Midian, uh, did not uh, circumcise his son or sons. And in the context, you see the importance. Notice right before what Moses is to tell Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So circumcision sets apart God's children from the children of the world. And so it's in this context of the command that he's supposed to give to 
uh, Pharaoh that his own son or sons, I guess maybe he hasn't had the second one yet, it's hard for me to tell, or maybe one had been circumcised, the other one hadn't, because he had two by her, um, was not circumcised. And so now, uh, in order for Moses to be a faithful ambassador of Jehovah to declare, let my son go, his son had to be designated as part of the covenant people for a consistency there. Now, um, Matthew Henry, I think it is, says that, uh, you notice the language that says he let him alone in verse 26. Apparently, Moses wasn't free to circumcise his son. God's standing against him uh, with a sword or whatever, and so Zipporah uh, performs that act. Again, it's not the act of a priest. And this perhaps caused some tension between them and uh, she went back to her father uh, until uh, the exodus was, uh, until they were out of Egypt. And then she rejoined Moses in the wilderness. So, yes, God accepted this act, obviously, because it says that he let him alone. And so uh, the son was circumcised. Moses now, and just practically speaking for the pastors that hear us, you see the importance of our consistency. Uh, we'll be discussing tomorrow with Zach in a preaching class about persuasion, and Dabney has a chapter on what uh, the old writers called ethos, and the minister's consistency is a very much important part of his persuasive ministry. And so if, if Moses is going to be the ambassador of the covenant God to release the covenant people, then his own children had to have the covenant son. Now, the second question is probably even more difficult, Virginia. Why does it seem that Moses does not direct the people to circumcise their sons once he assumes leadership over the 12 tribes? It's only in Joshua 5 that we see the circumcision. I think, and this is the answer that satisfies me the most, can't be dogmatic about it. We just know what happened. But uh, this generation, 20 years and over, when they refused to enter the land, were under God's condemnation. And so basically, they were, in a sense, disinherited. And I don't think every one of them was lost. But in terms of the covenant privilege of being the people of God, it would inherit the land. Circumcision was a sign of land inheritance. Uh, that's part of the reason why it was given to Abraham. Now, these people were not going to inherit the land. And so it seems that God did not allow them uh, to circumcise. Now, uh, one writer says that, that probably Joshua and Caleb circumcised their children because they would be still part of the land inheritance. So it's just these people who were 20 years old and upward, as they now enter the land, are circumcised and their children. Now, that's also a pattern for us that what happens in the New Testament then. So that uh, baptism had not been initiated, but now we have the new covenant son. Then, of course, it would be the adults who are going to be the heirs of the promises through their profession of faith and their children that would receive uh, the covenant son. So, and then Gilgal and here we have the, that's where it took place, and this is where the, the iniquity, the guilt of the wilderness was rolled away, again, symbolically through circumcision. Thank you for the question, Virginia, and I hope that was helpful for you. If there are any follow-up questions regarding circumcision and baptism and what exactly is going on in Exodus and in Joshua, please send them our way. Our next question comes from James Wirtz of Santa Rosa, California. I have a question regarding Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I'm a recent convert from Roman Catholicism. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 reads, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
My question is regarding the word faith, which is to me a very loaded and mystical word. It seems to me that the dominant culture in my congregation is knowing 100% that they will be saved because they have, quote, faith, end quote. Whenever someone knows something like that 100%, I have to put the brakes on that. My, my entire attraction to Reformed theology was the sovereignty of God and His forethought in all things. I feel as though if someone accepts every point of Reformed theology, but then says, because I have faith, I'm in the elect to be an act of taking God's sovereignty when we ourselves have skin in the game. In effect, making faith itself a work. If we're true to God's sovereignty in all regards, in all time and space, then shouldn't we say something like, quote, I genuinely believe that I have a very good shot at salvation, but ultimately it's God's call for any reason he deems fit, end quote. I've been told that this line of thought and interpretation is too Islamic. I understand that, but I've never viewed God as a distant, cold deity, which that word implies quite the opposite. What I have seen is a sort of smugness in being saved among certain people. I think it stunts spiritual growth. How can a good sermon really hit home if it literally preaches to God's choir that's already measuring for drapes in heaven? There's something off about this. Is this a congregational attitude or a universal PCA attitude? Well, James, uh, I say with all love and gentleness, this does not sound like an Islamic question. It sounds like someone that's still captured by some of the great eras of Rome. You don't realize that a number of things you've said are actually kind of things that were said by the Romish writers and at the Council of uh, Trent. Um, you see, the whole purpose of election is to bring us an assurance of salvation. Look at the text that you quoted. Uh, for by grace you have been saved. Now, what's Paul saying about those people? That they're saved. He's saying that they are saved. How? Through faith. He's not saying, as you suggest that we might want to say, uh, by grace I hope I am saved through faith. No, Paul says, by grace you're saved through faith, and that faith is a gift of God. Now, we don't start with election, as in the Scripture. We start where Peter tells us to start in Second Peter when he is telling us to examine ourselves. And he says to, in verse 10 of chapter 1 of First Peter, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. This is the order that Calvin approaches with respect to the doctrine of election. We don't know the eternal mind of God, and we're not supposed to. The secret things belong to God, the things revealed to us and our children. And so the whole way that we understand election is because I have responded to the call of the gospel and placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, in the section on uh, election, it says, and that's, Chapter 3, paragraph 8. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in His Word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation, that's calling, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. And then we come to the chapter on assurance of salvation, which is chapter 
18, paragraph 2. This certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith. I get that. Infallible. That means without error. Founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, and the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. Which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption? So it is God's will, James, that through election uh, of the sovereign grace of God, that a believer come to a full assurance of salvation. Now, to have that assurance in no way creates smugness. If it does, that's a problem. Uh, that last sentence in the confession, so shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So it should fill me with love and gratitude that God chose me, Christ uh, redeemed me, and the Spirit called me to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's not smugness. That is a rejoicing hope, but it's not doubtful either because uh, the Bible is quite clear. God wants us to know not everybody has that assurance, and the confession addresses that, but it's not wrong to have that assurance. Now, the purpose of our preaching to the congregation is not to uh, urge people to be saved, is to urge them to live as covenant people of God. Notice that all the New Testament letters are addressed to the churches and to the saints that are in those churches. And so covenant preaching is addressing uh, the people, so as Paul was saying in Ephesians chapter 4, to help us grow to a maturity of faith. That's the goal of preaching. Now, there will be hypocrites in the church. I was just reading William Perkins yesterday, and he says there's gross hypocrites and there's worldly hypocrites, and the gross are those that uh, know their condition. Others are those that have made the profession of faith and all of that. And we should address them. And Lord willing, we'll have visitors there. They're not in Christ. But uh, the, the people of God, God wants us to have assurance, not unto smugness, but unto uh, joyful lives of obedient thanksgiving. Thank you for the question, James. If you have a follow-up, please do not hesitate to send it in to us. We'd love to hear from you again as you work through these things. Our next question comes from Nathan Melker of Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, and he asks this question uh, regarding government and the church, church and state relations. In view of the way the government acts, particularly with regard to the financial support of abortion, is a Christian working for the government an act of support of the government's behavior? To clarify his question, what he's asking is, does a Christian um, support the government's behavior just by working for the government, even if he or she is not working in an aspect of government that deals specifically with uh, governmental action that we find morally reprehensible. Good. And by the way, Nathan, I'll be in Beavers Falls uh, right at the end of October, no November, uh, preaching there at the, uh, at the chapel church on the uh, Geneva campus. Look forward to meeting you. Um, let me direct your attention to what John the Baptist uh, said to a soldier who asked him about what his response should be to the baptism unto repentance. What's the fruit of repentance? And John says to him, uh, to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. In fact, soldiers have never changed. Uh, but anyway, um, so there John doesn't say, get out of the army, son. You're serving a, a, a wretched uh, a general. Uh, no, he tells them to how to behave justly and how to be content with his wages. And then, of course, Again, and I hope 
you people understand, well, faith and practice, I quote the standards a lot. Not because they replace Scripture, but because they are the most profound and wise summary of Scripture that I think there is in the English language. And so, in a sense, it's a shorthand to remind you. And here, in chapter 23, on the civil magistrate, paragraph 2, it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate, that's anybody in civil government, when called thereunto, and the managing whereof, as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. So for that end, they may lawfully, now under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasions. So this is a good summary. Government's appointed by God, Paul says in Romans 13, is a servant of God. Yes, even the government of wretched Nero was a servant of God. So as long as we're not put into positions where we are having to uh, work out sinful practices, then it's proper for the Christian to serve in the government, and thank God uh, for uh, those that are doing that. You know, it's, um, I think our vice president is a remarkable example of an evangelical or the secretary of education. Um, thankful for these people, for a number of late appointments by our president here who are bold professors of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank God for them and pray that God will use them. Thank you for the question, Nathan. Maybe the Lord will call you to government service one day. Or the ministry and come to Greenville. Yeah, or the ministry and you come to Greenville. We would love for that. Our next question comes from Lucas Salgado of Recife, Brazil. During a couple study group, someone asked a question about divorce that nobody could answer. The question was, if someone commits a crime punishable by death according to the Bible, such as murder, can the spouse ask for divorce? A follow-up on that question was, if the state doesn't enforce the death penalty, can the spouse consider that the offending party is dead in the eyes of God and therefore ask for a divorce? Well, if nobody could answer that, Lucas, what do you think I can? <laughs> <laughs> but I shall try and get in a lot of trouble. Um, it's a very important question, and I think the question is valid because of the fact that our penal system is no longer reflecting Scripture. Uh, the only people that should be in prison, as I understand it, uh, would be those that should have been put to death uh, for uh, uh, those crimes of uh, rape, kidnapping, and murder. I think are the particular crimes that uh, come, come to mind in, a, um, in the Old Covenant law. Uh, and then they should have been put to death, but in our culture they're not put to death, but they should be put away. Uh, murderers should always be put to death. The person that should be in prison, I think biblically, the only person should be the manslaughter. And this was the person that then was sent to the city of refuge. Remember, we're to look for the principles of equity. So what does that mean today? Well, you imprison somebody for some period of time uh, if they've accidentally uh, killed uh, someone. So it's an important question, particularly with respect to murder. And I, th I can answer that one, I think, fairly easily. And I would say, yes, that's grounds for divorce. They're either going to be in prison for life or they're put to death. And they should have been put to death biblically. So the principle of equity is, it is the same thing. And I think that the person is no longer bound to them in, in marriage. Now, can, can the person elect to remain married to, uh, to an indicted murderer? Or do you think that person is bound to seek the divorce? If we were living with proper government, the person would be put to death. 
we're not talking about a person that's accused of murder and there's some question and the person wants to wait. No, we're talking about someone who, who shot someone in broad daylight yeah, this on is, Madison and Fifth Avenue. I think Avenue. they should divorce them. I think they're dead. They're dead to them. You take Paul's language. I'll be preaching on this in chapel Wednesday. Uh, they're dead to you um, because legally they're dead. Now, other crimes like a kidnapping uh, are uh, rape. Who'd want to remain married to a rapist? I don't know. But anyway, I, I think that those people may also, um, particularly the rapist, these death-dealing crimes, um, I, I think because the person would have been put to death, that it's surely something that a session would wrestle with. It's, and that's where we ultimately go with the question. But with a murderer, I, I, I think I can answer that one pretty straightforwardly. I think they should be divorced. Thank you for the question, Lucas. I think that we could have extended conversation about this particular issue, I would love to get uh, Kevin Backus and George Scipione involved. I should have asked George this question last week. When yeah, while well, he was here. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the thing that keeps on coming to mind to me is what about the man who, in, in, a, in a fit of rage, uh, murders somebody for some you know, despicable wrong against one of his children, and then he gets locked up because it's premeditated and all that stuff. Well, no, if it's a fit of rage, it's not premeditated. But if it is premeditated, I mean, if it's not just a fit of rage, I should have rephrased that. If it's a premeditated uh, Crime of passion is one thing. thing. If it's a premeditated thing, as much as I might have done it myself, I still would be willing to go die for it. Wait a minute, let's just expand this right. a bit, though. Because I think that we are a bit too simplistic with our approach to divorce. I think I've had another question uh, on this uh, a few months ago. Um, I think that the uh, failure to support a family or uh, a physical abuse of wife or children, uh, either one of those is grounds for divorce. And I put them under the desertion element. The, the law says in Exodus 21 that uh, man's responsible to provide a wife with uh, uh, food, conjugal rights, lodging. And so... Uh, the man who, by uh, uh, gambling, inveterate, refuses to repent, refuses to listen to the counsel of the church, would be excommunicated, and then I think that the wife may divorce him because he's not supporting the family, particularly if he's been abusive and uh, physically abusive. So I take desertion in a bit broader way. I think you go back to some of the Puritan casualty, casuistry, and we'll find there's probably a broader approach to divorce than there have been in, in our more narrow um, evangelical circles. I think you're right about that. Our next question comes again from Nathan Melker of Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, and there's no ban on giving us multiple questions to consider, folks, so uh, we recommend that if they're good questions. Nathan asks... <laughs> <laughs> This is a good question. I know what it is. That's why I wanted to answer it. <laughs> My denomination, the OPC, that's Orthodox Presbyterian Church, has at our last General Assembly put together a committee to look into modernizing the language of the standards, replacing the doths and thous. What are your thoughts on that? Again, Nathan, uh, good question. Uh, I think it must be a, a denominational level decision. So we've lately had some individually produced uh, modernizations of the standards. I'm not keen on that, particularly if it's a denomination that has an adopted standard. But by having to go through this process of being approved by the assembly, I think that it's a good thing. Uh, just as I don't want people 
in the new generation to have to read a King James Bible. Why read a King James uh, Confession? So if it's done carefully, no doctrine is uh, in any way affected by the modernization of the English, and it is approved then by the General Assembly, then I don't have a problem. Yeah, I think a couple of our professors here are actually serving on, on that, that committee. committee, either in an advisory capacity or as a full Just member. Just have to be careful because you don't want to let the, something, uh, somebody slip a change in through the back door. And some people evidently have interpreted what that motion actually was at the assembly a bit more broadly than what I think the intention was. And so our men are very concerned as well. This is editorial, uh, modernizing, and that's the extent of it. My problem with it, Dr. Piper. I thought you scowled. Uh, I, oh, I have a big problem with this, with this issue. And I don't mean to throw a pipe bomb into our sister denomination. Um, we certainly have enough problems of our own in the PCA, much more severe than this. But um, my issue with this is, and I don't know what measures they're taking uh, through ICRC and, and their inner church relations committee and everything, but they're running headlong into an issue here that has ramifications, not just for the OPC, but for every confessional church that has adopted the Westminster standards as their as its confession and, uh, and and subordinate standards. And so the OPC modernizes their language. That makes them one more step removed from the ARP and the, and the RPCNA that have adopted older iterations of the standards, and, and it takes them out, out, of, out of alignment with, with the PCA, which still has the, you know, the American revisions, but with the old language and everything. It, why do we need yet one more addition of the There's no reason standards. why other denominations could not adopt. I mean, the, those that hold all of the American edition, if this is done well, there'd be no reason why the PCA would not adopt it. The other problem is theological. If a denomination is going to hold to the, uh, the Scottish edition that's been changed by the American churches, then we're not going to try to, this is not removing us another step from them. It's just modernizing our differences. Okay, well, I still don't like it. So, there. There. If it was a cooperative effort among denominations that adopt this particular this these particular standards, I, I'd be more keen on it, I guess. Our next question comes from Chad Warner of Simpsonville, South Carolina. And Chad asks, What does the Bible say or imply about how many members a congregation should have? How should a congregation decide whether to grow or to plant a new congregation? Chad, thank you for the question. It's something uh, pastorally and as a church planter in the past, I have uh, wrestled with a good bit. Of course, the Bible doesn't uh, set numbers uh, on the size of a congregation. What the Bible does do, and so when you say imply, this is what I would at least infer uh, from what the Bible uh, would say, and there's a number of, uh, in of inferences. Uh, the first is, what's a church about? Well, it's about uh, pastoral care. It's about, as I said in a previous question, seeing the membership grow from immaturity to maturity. It's about elders knowing well uh, their members and being able then to uh, work with them and to help the pastoral staff to uh, work with them. So the whole role of, of elder, and I, it's, of course it's my opinion, and this is another dinosaur opinion, that... Uh, Pastors should also be visiting not just their elders, but people in their congregation. So how many people can a pastor handle? If you have an associate, they can divide the congregation up. 
You can go a bit larger in that way. And the second is what we infer to be the biblical model of congregations because of what we know of the uh, logistical necessities. So if in Jerusalem there were initially a few hundred and then 5,000 in a very brief period of time, uh, where were they meeting? Uh, they were meeting in, in larger homes like the upper room at John Mark's house, which is not going to afford more than maybe 100 people. Uh, they were uh, meeting in various, what I would call parishes, congregations around the city, following again the synagogue system. So in Jerusalem, you had a number of synagogues. So everybody wasn't at the temple. The temple was a place for sacrifices, but the regular weekly meetings were in the synagogues. And there were uh, synagogues around language, cultural, uh, geographical locations in the city. And I think this is the pattern the church followed. So it's called the Jerusalem pattern. The Ashadam Reformed churches then adopted, deliberately adopted that pattern uh, to have a smaller um, uh, congregations. All, and actually, our whole concept of Presbyterian government comes out of this system. So I think there are principles involved in terms of a biblical pattern that we see in the early church and uh, the pastoral need of God's people. So the next step then is how do I work this out in terms of, of, of the logistics of where I am? That becomes more difficult because not all Reformed churches are equal. And there are Reformed churches that are Reformed are Presbyterian in name, not in much more. There are those that are very uh, consistently um, biblical and Presbyterian. And because of that, there's people that drive by uh, some Presbyterian churches to worship at another Presbyterian church. Uh, but the ideal is to have a church that can be properly pastored. Uh, and so, I'm, you know, you, you draw a number out of a hat. Um, I would say that for me, the ideal membership is about 250. When a church gets to about 300, I take 50 families or 75 families, and you've already got another church plant. We have a graduate, Cliff Blair, who has a passionate church in Charlotte, it's the shortest church plant in the history of churches. It was a group of people came out of the first Orthodox Presbyterian Church. That's not what it's called, but the first Orthodox Presbyterian Church. With elders and deacons, uh, he was a church planner, and two weeks later he was a pastor with a fully organized session and diaconate. Uh, for me, that is the way for the church to grow. Now, those that want larger congregations push back and say, yes, but we can do so much more uh, with a larger congregation. Uh, yes and no. Not if we behave like Presbyterians. Let's just say that we have three um, solid 200-member congregations in a fairly concise geographical area here in Greenville. Well, these congregations could go together and have a campus worker on the high school that they would go together and pay for. And this is how that parish model worked in Amsterdam. Um, they could put a person on a college campus. They could go together and behave like Presbyterians in all types of programs, but maintain the pastoral care of a smaller parish. So that's, that's my desire. Now, the number can be set 200, 300 
350, whatever, there's no way that we can. I mean, the, the main thing is, can the pastoral staff adequately, with the elders, you got enough godly men that you can. I was talking to one of our uh, graduates who's uh, in a much larger church, and we figured out that the elders that he has, if they um, had under shepherd groups, would have something like 20 something family units each. And they don't have other elders. And they got a rotation system, which makes it also all the more difficult. That's something we need. Somebody send me a question about rotation system, okay? Otherwise, I'll write it myself. Uh, <laughs> but, um, and so you, you just, there's no way you have pastoral oversight. And I was in one church, and periodically we get these esoteric prayer requests. Um, we got a couple of families that are about to divorce. Please pray for them. And I'm telling the elders, you know, if you've been in their homes, it could be that you would have caught this thing two years ago and this marriage would be salvable. Now it's going to be an object of church discipline. So there's a, there's a lot going on there. So I can't set a figure, Chad, but um, I can say on the top end that uh, six, 700-member church is you do. I, I met a man at church Sunday morning. I'm, I've met him before. He didn't remember me. And, and I don't know a lot of people at church. This is I have to ask them, are you visiting? No, I've been a member here five years. Uh, I had one of the elders over with the wives of one of our students who've been members there for months, and he says uh, he had to introduce himself to her. You know, if a church, if the members cannot know each other and the session cannot know the members in particular, I think it's too large. Now, that's a personal opinion, and you're going to get just as much those who will argue back um, against me uh, on that, and, and that's fine. And, and at the end of the day, you have to say it's a, it's a matter of Christian liberty. Uh, but I'll give you my reasons why I think smaller is better. I think you can more effectively engage with the local community oh, out yeah. of a smaller church yeah. than a larger church. A real parish, the stuff that Dr. Wilbur and I have worked on in terms of parish evangelism. Yeah, that's what I mean. And parish ministry, which is built on that Jerusalem-Amsterdam model, it's dynamite. And I think we would see a lot more, humanly speaking, conversions and mature Christians and churches. Very good. Well, thank you for the question, Chad. I think that brings us up on our time. Dr. Piper, do you have any closing thoughts, particularly in coming out of last month's episode and our earth-shaking conversations about the PCA and some of the feedback that you've received? No, it's just I, I've heard some ruling elders say they're going to try to get there. Uh, listen, if you're a ruling elder and you need help to get to the General Assembly, please write us, and we will interact with some of our churches, and we'll do everything we can, God willing, to, to get you there. But I'm still playing with this idea, show up. You don't have the money? Show up. Uh, we've got to check the rules of assembly operations. Zach reminded me that we might have, you, we might have a constitutional reason to keep you away, but uh, that's shameful if we do. I don't think I reminded you of that, did I? Yeah, I think you did, Zach. It was me, huh? I think so. I'm giving you credit where credit's due. Oh, I thought it was someone wiser and smarter than me who knew to bring that Is up. Is there such a one? Oh, there are many. Well, uh, we've done well today. So look, we need questions now. I only have two left. Uh, and they're good, but they're from people who get to ask questions all the time. <laughs> so uh, please now get us more good questions like these, uh, biblical, theological, pastoral questions. I love doing this, and God's blessing it. I'm constantly meeting people, 
to talk about faith and practice. So this fellow that just said it's part of how they came to covenant theology and paedo baptism. Praise God, that just makes me want to dance. This is how I keep my job, people. If Dr. Pipe is happy, I have a job. If he's not happy, I may or may not have a job. So please mm. send in questions. Neither <laughs> one of us may have a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Just kidding. But seriously, send in your questions. Dr. Piper, thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure to have you here in the studio. Thank you, Zach. Yeah, thank you for hosting it. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.